Well, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to who for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking, says the Hebrew people would commit two evils. The first is they would reject the fountain of living waters. And the second is that upon rejection of him, they would roof for themselves other cisterns, containers that could hold no water. <clears throat> living water in Hebrew is called Maim Hayim. We find it in Ezekiel 47, certainly. We find it in John chapter 4. And we find it in John 7, 38 and 39, where Jesus tells us what it is. But it's an Old Testament concept in the Tanakh. It begins in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 3 tells us about the Holy Spirit being our Lord. He's the first to define this water as the Holy Spirit. Living water is moving water that goes into the water table when rain falls. But in John 7, 38 and 39, Jesus says directly, this living water is the Holy Spirit. And as Jeremiah predicts, the fountain of living water, the one who gives the Holy Spirit, would be rejected. This is one of the places where the rejection of the Messiah by the majority of the Jewish people is predicted. Their second evil, however, would be to invent a religious system of their own that would be spiritually bankrupt. Rabbinic Judaism. Let me tell you a story. It was a tale of two rabbis. Once upon a time, there was a famous rabbi, and his name was Rabbi Hillel. He was the founder of a school of Pharisees called the School of Hillel. Actually, there were two kinds of Pharisees, the School of Hillel and the School of Samai. Now, Rabbi Hillel was the grandfather of another famous rabbi whose name was Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel. And Rabbi Gamaliel had a rabbinic academy where he educated various other people to be rabbis and a number of his students became prominent rabbis in their own right. One of which was Rabbi Ankleos. And in Judaism we have the Targum Ankleos. Very important Aramaic manuscript translations of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic. Ankleos was one of his very prominent students. But his two most prominent students were Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus. Something happened. The prophet Daniel predicted in chapter 9 that the Messiah would come and die before the second temple would be destroyed. Jewish people will normally reject Jesus as the Messiah for two reasons. The first reason is because of the atrocious history of anti-Semitism perpetrated in the name of Christianity against the Jews. My wife's parents are Holocaust survivors. You would ask my wife's mother, for instance, whose father was killed in the Holocaust in the name of Christianity, what's the gospel of Jesus? He would tell you. The gospel of Jesus is Jewish children being kicked into an oven. That's the gospel of Jesus. That's the first reason Jews would tend to reject Jesus as the Messiah. The history of Christian anti-Semitism, not only a Roman Catholic phenomenon, although predominantly Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, but also Protestant phenomenon. 
Luther, of course, we, we the German nation, are to blame. We do not murder the Jews to prove we are Christians. Such is his teaching and his doctrine. That's how he ended his life. Was ever a man who began right, it was certainly Martin Luther. Was ever a man who began wrong, it was co-equally a certain Martin Luther. Nonetheless, let's look at this. That's one reason. Now, a lot of times I find people are intimidated in witnessing to Jews. How can we witness to Jews because of all this anti-Semitism? The solution to that problem is ironically simple. Very simple. You're going to reject Jesus because of what people did in his name? Last year, an Orthodox Jew with a yarmulke on his head in the name of Moses and the Torah put a bullet in the back of the Prime Minister of Israel. Am I going to reject Moses and the Torah because of what someone did in his name? Jews rejected and persecuted their own prophets in the name of Moses, normally. Shall I reject Moses because Jeremiah was thrown into prison, or because Zechariah was killed in the temple, or because Isaiah was torn in half? I have to accept or reject Moses on the basis of what Moses said and did. And likewise, Jesus must be accepted on the basis of what he said and did, not what people did in his name. If you were to reject Christianity on that basis or the gospel, you must reject Judaism on the self-same basis. After all, it says in Mishnei Proverbs three times that an unjust balance is an abomination to Yahweh. The other problem is more difficult. Why didn't Jesus bring in worldwide peace? That's more complicated than Why? If he was the Messiah, how come he didn't bring in worldwide peace? We'll come to that later. Look at the second half of this prophecy in Isaiah. They would move for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, when it was destroyed, it became impossible for rabbinic Judaism to be practiced. They couldn't do it anymore. When the sages translated Leviticus 17, they said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. No high priest, no Levitical priesthood, no temple. What do we do? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai claimed to have the solution. What was his solution? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, instead of the temple, we'll have the synagogue as the center of our faith and religion. And he convened a council at a place called Gavne near Tel Aviv, where rabbinic Judaism was born. And instead of a high priest, the Kohen Gadol, we'll have the rabbi. And instead of keeping the Levitical legislation and the sacrificial system, we will instead begin developing halakha, rabbinic tradition, new mitzvot based on the teaching of the rabbis, Torah Be'al Peh, the oral Torah, instead of what was specifically written by Moses. Hence, you have this problem. You wind up with the Judaism that's not biblical. That was exactly what was predicted by Jeremiah. They would reject the fountain of living water, the Messiah, and begin another faith. No, the Judaism of the rabbis today is in no sense the Judaism taught by Moses and the Torah. In no sense. On the other hand, having said that, most of what the world calls Christianity is in equal measure, not the Christianity taught by Jesus in the New Testament. At no time, at no time in Israel's history was there ever anything more than a faithful remnant. The 7,000 who bowed the knee to Baal, who would not bow the knee to Baal, they were the faithful remnant. The rest did it. 
Those who would not rebel against Moses in the wilderness? Those who were not of one mind in putting the prophets to death? There was never anything more than a faithful remnant of Jewish people who were not only physically circumcised, but as the Torah and Jeremiah said, and as Paul later said, circumcised the heart. Similarly, there's never been anything more than a minority of Bible-believing Christians who were genuinely regenerate, truly born again, and remaining loyal to Jesus on the basis of Scripture. Never. From the time of the post-Nicene church to the present day, Bible-believing Christians have never been anything more than a remnant minority. Never. Now let's understand this. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai then begins a form of Judaism which is not biblical. At the same time, something else happens. Belief in Jesus begins to expand among the Jewish people. By the second century, even some secular Jewish historians like Max Demon estimate that 25% of the Jews in Jerusalem believe Jesus to have been the Messiah. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai goes on like this, and later he has successors like Rabbi Akiva, and so on, and so on, and Judaism begins a historical development. But something else happens. Finally, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is old and decrepit and about to die, and he's on his deathbed. He was known as the Mighty Hammer by his disciples. That's what they call Rabbi Akiva, the Mighty Hammer. And he's on his deathbed weeping, and his disciples came to him and said, Oh, mighty hammer, why is it that you weep? And on his deathbed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, I weep because I'm about to meet Hashem, God, literally the name. Blessed be his name. And there are before me two roads, one which leads to paradise and one which leads to Gehenna. And I know not to which of these two roads he shall sentence me. The founder of rabbinic Judaism on his deathbed confessed to his disciples that he had no assurance of salvation and no conviction that what he did was even the right thing. He didn't know if he was going to hell for having done it. This is in the Talmud. But he had a classmate. There were two rabbis in the same class. His classmate was Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus. Now when his classmate, Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, was about to die, he also spoke to his disciples. Only he had something different. Trouble me no further. I've run the good race. I've fought the good fight. I know that henceforth is laying up for me a crown of righteousness. Every Jew will follow one of these two rabbis. Every Jew will follow one of these two classmates. They will either follow the rabbinic Judaism of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, or they will follow the Messianic Judaism of Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, better known to some people as Paul the Apostle. And Paul begins to write about this. Let's look at what he says about the root. In Romans chapter 11. Let's look at verse 16. If the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also, and if the root be holy, the branches are as well. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, that is non-Jews, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, 
Do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The Greek word here for root is reza, reza. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who sell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again. For God is able to graft them in again. For you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And he uses two Greek words, pathadon, until, and ethnon, Gentiles or nations, the Hebrew equivalent being goyim. Notice that the New Testament does not speak the language of replacement. It does not say the church has replaced Israel. It uses the language of incorporation. Same as in Ephesians. You were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, but you no longer are. It doesn't say you've become it, and it has not become what it was. The New Testament always speaks of incorporation. In other words, Gentiles who accept Jesus replace Jews who reject him. But the tree remains the same. Gentiles who accept the Messiah of the Jews replace those Jews who reject him. But it's not another tree. Same tree. The original branches of the tree were Jews, Paul says. We find every writer of the New Testament was a Jew except for Luke, who was a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. Then Paul goes on to talk about the time of the Gentiles coming to an end. He does so in a soteriological context, much the same as Jesus did in a prophetic context, in Luke 21.11, 21.24, he says in the last days, these natural branches will be grafted in again. And already we see the beginning of this prophecy being fulfilled. The astronomical numbers of Jews coming to faith in Israel, Russia, the United States is incredible. We can document 50,000 Jews saved in Russia in the last 18 months. Last 18 months. One meeting in St. Petersburg, Russia, nearly 3,000 Jews filled out cards to give their lives to Jesus as the Messiah in one meeting. As many as would say that they are Pentecost. In the United States and Canada, there are tens of thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish believers in Jesus. Almost all of them are evangelical, very few nominal Christians. Almost all of them are born-again Christians. More than that, probably 90% of them have been saved in the last 15 to 18 years. We've reached a time in church history where Jews are no longer coming to faith in Jesus, one here or one there. The number of Jewish believers in Israel alone has quadrupled in the last five years. You've already seen this. The founder of Christians in sport, Eddie Wax, is a Jew. Richard and Sabina Wormbrand, Christ of the Communist Nations, Jews. The leader of the Christian anti-abortion movement in America, Melanie Green, wrote the hymn, There is a Redeemer, God is Jewish. One of the finest evangelists and probably the best teacher on the subject of evangelism that I've ever heard is a Jew from your country, Ray Comfort. The only person to have a number one hit single on the secular pop charts that was Christian, going up to the spirit in the sky, Norman Greenbaum, a Jew. 
Now, this is the beginning of what you see happening. It's going to get more like this before Jesus comes, but that's not our main emphasis tonight. Don't lose sight of the riza, of the root. It's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You think of an olive tree, it has a root which is under the ground. You don't see what's under the ground, but you know that that root is there. If that root was not there, or if that root was dead, the tree would be dead. That's what Paul is saying. If God is finished with Israel and the Jews, well then the church is finished as well, because that's its root. Christianity is not a Gentile religion, nor is it a Western religion. It's an Eastern faith, and it's a Hebraic faith. We've perhaps Hellenized it, we've Tratonized it, we've put it into Westernized packaging, but its spiritual and theological essence is Hebraic, it's Jewish. Don't lose sight of the root. Now, I'm not talking about taking on Yiddish or Jewish culture. I'm simply talking about understanding Christianity as a Jewish faith. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31, where the new covenant is predicted. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In Hebrew we say, to cut a covenant. Here the new covenant is directly predicted. The New Testament or New Covenant. I will make a new covenant with the Baptists, the Plymouth Brethren, the Pentecostals. God says the New Covenant would be made with the Jews, doesn't he? God never gave the New Covenant to the church. The church is simply the spiritual continuity of what Israel is. The new covenant is not made with the church, it's made with the Jews. Christians are grafted in, incorporated into a covenant made to the Jewish people. It was always like that. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman is ultimately Jesus. The seed of Abraham is ultimately Jesus who crushes the serpent's head. The only thing a Gentile Christian is now is what Ruth was for the Old Testament, or what Zipporah was, or what Uriah was. The only thing. The only thing a Gentile Christian is now is what Ruth was in the Old Covenant. Someone who became, in a spiritual sense, grafted in to God's eternal people. And the only thing that Jews who reject Jesus are now are the equivalent of those who participated in Korach's rebellion and stoned their prophets and were cut off from their own olive tree. And the only thing a Jewish believer is, like my wife, my children, the only thing they are, the only thing, are the faithful remnant of Israel. As Paul says in Romans 11, they are for now what the 7,000 who didn't bow the knee to Baal were for Elijah's day. That's all. Don't lose sight of the roots. When you lose sight of the roots, you lose sight of where you came from. And when you lose sight of where you came from, you lose sight of where you are going. When you lose sight of where you came from, you're going to lose sight of where you are going.
Let's begin to understand some of how this is happening now. We all know what's going on in certain countries, by no means all over the world, only in a few countries actually, mainly England, Wales, Scotland, Australia, and New Zealand. The laughing phenomena did not go all over the world. I was in Toronto last October. Most people never heard of it. Most people in Canada never heard of it. I went to that church. I was there on other business, but I went when I was there, and almost no one was a Canadian. South Africa, it's there, but not as big as it was in your country. America, most people never heard of it. The countries where it came from, it's nothing. It's only in countries where Christianity has reached a very low ebb in recent years that you found people embracing it, grasping at straws. Not big anywhere else. Certainly not all over the world. Nonetheless, one of the things you found people saying was, don't criticize it, neither what Rabbi Gamaliel said. You might be found to be arguing against God. If it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. Don't speak against it. If it's not of God, it'll disappear of itself. Have you heard people say that? That was one of their defenses. Well, this is the same Rabbi Gamaliel who was the tutor of Paul and Ben-Zakai. Let's look what Rabbi Gamaliel said. Acts chapter 5. Now remember, the day of Pentecost, when the real fire fell, 3,000 were saved the first day. 5,000 the second day. Thousands and thousands day after day. Wesley's revivals, the same. Thousands and thousands were saved daily. Early Pentecostalism mushroomed similarly. Any authentic move of God's Spirit was almost synonymous with astronomical levels of conversion. After three years, of course, none of that has happened. After three years. In fact, Rodney Brown has been doing this stuff eight years, seven years. And he's certainly not bought any revival. In fact, the excesses have only discredited our testimony in the eyes of the unsaved. Now, I say this as someone who's personally a Pentecostal. I am of a Pentecostal persuasion. But this is not typical Pentecostal. It hasn't happened. So they said, don't criticize it. But look at Gamaliel. What did he say? A certain Pharisee, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. He was slain, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man... Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of action should be of men, it will be overthrown, but if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found to be fighting against God. And that becomes their truth text for not criticizing Rodney Brown or John Arnett or all these excesses and whatever. And they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to preach the gospel anymore. <laughs> that was his 
Isaiah chapter 8 predicts that before the Messiah was to come, there'd be many false teachers, false prophets, wizards of all sorts. Isaiah 9, of course, the Messiah is born. But before that, it's preceded by false prophets arising. His return is the same. Before he comes the second time, there are many false teachers and false prophets. The only thing Rabbi Gamaliel was intending to say was that if Jesus is just another false Messiah, as there were many, Christianity would not last. That's all. But some people have taken this as a proof text. Longevity becomes God's proof if it's of him or not. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses must truly be of God. They've been around over 100 years. The Mormons must be of God. They've been around over 100 years. Islam must be of God. It's been around since what? The 7th century? Hinduism and Buddhism must really be of God. They're older than Christianity. This is a moron mentality. The moron, only a theological moron would present this argument to defend something. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people who are unqualified for the ministry standing in the pulpit teaching rubbish. They don't know what they're talking about. They've made one mistake is they lost sight of the root. We know all about Rabbi Gamaliel. He was not a believer in Jesus. And from the Talmudic history, we know neither did he become one. Idiot. Absolute incompetence. Scriptures tell us directly in 1 Timothy, if people cannot teach, if they cannot rightly divide the word of God, they have no right to be in Christian leadership. It says in chapter 1, that they made confident assertions about things they don't know what they're talking about. That's what they're doing. If you heard anybody say that, he should not be in the ministry. Dangerous person. To make longevity the proof of something that God is not? What rank stupidity? I'm not attacking people, but would you allow someone to fly a 747 who knew, who knew nothing of navigation? No, he could hurt people. He could destroy people. Would you allow someone to practice surgery who knew nothing of anatomy? Of course you would. He could destroy people. Well, if you allow someone who uses those kinds of arguments to stand in the pulpit, you're doing the same thing. The Word of God says he has no business to be this. These are dangerous people. Absolutely dangerous people. If that's their level of exegesis, they're the equivalent of a 747 pilot who knows nothing of navigation or a surgeon who knows nothing of anatomy. But they just have a pastoral heart. Does being a wonderful humanitarian equip someone to be a physician? Or that you like to travel, make you a 747 pilot? Stupid, isn't it? But let's press on. Let's look further. Let's look at the issue of prophecy. Turn to Daniel chapter 12. After Daniel sees these prophetic revelations of what would transpire, not only in the events surrounding Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period with the Maccabees, but he sees events eschatological, including the resurrection, 
He sees, he's told this in verse 9. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. The apocalyptic literature of Scripture, Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel, these things are sealed up. There is no such thing as new doctrine or new doctrinal revelation. What there is is a deeper understanding of the doctrine already revealed in the Word of God. Be careful of people who will tell you they have all of Revelation or all of Daniel figured out and they give you their own paradigm or their own dispensational formula for explaining it all. The scriptures say these things are sealed up. The Holy Spirit will decipher these things for the faithful at the appropriate time. Now we're beginning to see clearer and clearer what these things are talking about. But the Gentile church has fundamentally misunderstood prophecy. It has done so ever since at least the 4th century or the 3rd century. Why? They've lost sight of the roots. They are reading a Hebraic book with a Hellenistic mind. They're only seeing a portion of Paul was a Pharisee educated in the rabbinic school of the Pharisees, the school of Hillel. We can see Paul using the seven midot, the seven principles of interpretation of Rabbi Hillel, repeatedly. We similarly see them in Hebrews. And we see Jesus using the rabbinic method of teaching called mashal and nimshal, used by the other rabbis of his day. Let's understand certain things. Something began to go wrong in the early church under the influences of someone named Philo. Judaism and Christianity began acquiring Greek methods of allegorical interpretation, replacing the Hebrew methods. In the Hebrew methods used in things like Midrash, you never, ever, ever base a doctrine on a type or allegory. What you do is you use the typology, the symbolism, the allegory to illustrate, to illuminate doctrine. For instance, Galatians chapter 4, the two women, Sarah and Hagar. Now Paul in Galatians states directly his theology of the law. But then he uses the Midrash to illustrate it. The symbolism does not become the basis of his doctrinal theology, but it certainly becomes the illumination of it. The Last Supper, as a Jewish Passover Seder. Our doctrine of atonement is not based on the symbolism of the Last Supper. But the Last Supper certainly becomes the God-given illustration of it. When you understand the Jewish Passover Seder and the Passover meal, you certainly understand the Lord's Supper much deeper than we presently do in most churches. And a lot of the errors surrounding the Lord's Supper would be easily dismissed if people understood it for what it was. We'll touch on that shortly. But let's begin understanding some things about the Jewish approach to the Bible that the church has lost. It's easier to illustrate or to show what Midrash is than to explain it. If a Jewish Christian... At the end of the first century, we're reading John's Gospel. 
and he read John 1, John 2, and John 3, he would have said, this is the story of the new creation. He would have called the gospel, and he would have said, John 1 to 3 is the story of the new creation, a narrative of the new creation. But he also would have said, it is a midrash on Breshit, Aleph, Bet, and Gimel. A midrash on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the story of the creation. He would have seen a midrashic relationship between Genesis 1 to 3, the creation, and John 1 to 3, the new creation. He would have said, God walks the earth in the creation in Genesis, doesn't he? I heard him walking in the garden. Now God walks the earth in the new creation in John. He would have said, the Spirit moves on the water and brings forth the creation in Genesis. Now the Spirit moves on the water and brings forth the new creation in John. He would have said, God comes to separate the light from dark in the creation in Genesis. Then he would have said, God comes to separate the light from dark in the new creation in John. Doesn't he? He would have said in Genesis, in the creation, there was the small light and the great light. Then he would have said in the new creation, there's Yochanan HaMatbil, John the Baptist, the little light, and Yeshua HaMashiach, the great light. Then he would have said, the tree of life, the fig tree is in the garden. In the rabbinic literature, the tree of life that you see in Ezekiel, and in Genesis and in Revelation is represented by a fig tree. Now in John chapter 1, Nathaniel says, how do you know? How did you know that? And Rabbi Yeshua Bar Yosef Minetzeret, that was his real name, Jesus' real name, he says to Nathaniel, God is given, I knew because I saw you under the fig tree. Now if you read one of these Hellenistic Gentile commentaries, It'll simply tell you that Jesus saw him under a fig tree. Yeah, Jesus probably did see him under a Jesus did see him under a fig tree, but that's not what it means. Nidrashically, in rabbinic metaphor, what Jesus was saying to Nathaniel is, I saw you from the garden. I saw you from the creation of the world, from the foundation. I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel. Those whom we predestined, those whom we foreknew from the foundation of the world. That's what he's saying. I base no doctrine on that. I use the Midrash, the typology, to illustrate the doctrine. But the Gentile church misses that. It doesn't understand what the fig tree is even talking about. So because it doesn't understand what the fig tree is talking about, when it gets to Matthew 24, the last days, learn the parable of the fig tree, they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. They think it's simply Israel and the rebirth of the state of Israel. That's like one minor... One, one minor... It's, it's, it's just like one digit in a complicated equation. Oh, what are they talking about? They're reading the whole thing the wrong way. All of it. So reacting against the Hellenistic or the highly Hellenized hermeneutics, or the highly Hellenized allegorical hermeneutics, that began with the Gnostics but gained momentum throughout the Middle Ages, particularly under medieval scholasticism with Aquinas, which we'll look at tomorrow, the reformers come along on the backs of 16th century humanism. And they try to get back to the literal plain meaning to correct the errors of medieval Catholicism as we'll look at tomorrow. 
and they begin using rules of grammatical, historical exegesis to correct the errors of medieval Catholicism, who are saying things like the 70 years that the Pope spent in Avignon, France, that's the Babylonian captivity. They were saying all kinds of crazy things based on this crazy allegorical method they developed, which reached its low ebb through the scholastic movement of, of Aquinas and those who came after him. So the reformers as humanists wanted to go back to the plain meaning in the original text. And that enabled them to rediscover basic truths. Under the influences of people like Lefebvre, Luther found that metanoia in Greek meant not to go to confession, to do penance, but to repent. And they understood things like justification and they realized that medieval Catholicism with its purgatory and the rest of it was a lot of rubbish. Fair enough. But they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So they began constructing rules of exegesis based on their own views. All you have to do is get a copy of John Calvin's secular work, his commentary on Seneca's De Clementia, and see that the methods of exegesis that John Calvin used to interpret Scripture were the same methods of exegesis he used to interpret classic Greek and Roman literature. He was a humanist. Grammatical, historical method. I'm not saying that that is wrong. I'm saying it is like a 15-step polynomial equation or a quadratic equation. And you solve the first step and think you've got the whole equation solved. Grammatical, historical exegesis becomes the be-all and end-all in Protestant hermeneutics or Protestant interpretation of the Bible. And of course, this quickly degenerated with the Enlightenment and you had higher criticism. Instead of studying the Bible as history and literature that was inspired, then it just became history and literature. The Protestants. They missed something. They missed it. Let's understand first. Let's look at First Peter chapter two, verse five. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. No fewer than seven places, the New Testament tells us the church is the temple, employing one of three Greek words, haron, maos, or oikos. And Christians are the stones of the temple. We're the stones of the temple, as it were, cemented together by the Holy Spirit. We are the stones of the temple. So the temple's the church, and we're the stones. He says this in Corinthians, says this in Ephesians, says it's a lot of places. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into the Temple Mount against the background of the large Herodian stones of which you can still see evidence of, or some of them, in the Wailing Wall. If you come with us on our study tour of, of Israel in September, October, I'll show them to you. You can take a brochure if you'd like. We want to teach Christians how to understand the scriptures from a Jewish perspective on site. So we take study tours. Not pilgrimages or holidays or vacations, study tours. And he comes into the Temple Mount and the people are singing the Hallel Rabbah to him. Part of the Machzor for the Passover ritual. The Machzor is the liturgy used for a Jewish holiday. And the Machzor, or the liturgy for Passover, involves singing the Hallel Rabbah, Psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. 
And the people begin singing, Hoshana, Hoshana, Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai, Barachnu Hem Mibet Adonai, Hodu Adonai Kitov Kile Olam Chazdo, Hoshana, Hoshana Leben David, Save us, save us, Son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Sanhedrin are indignant. And the Sanhedrin say, tell the people to be quiet. But Jesus says, if these remain silent, the stones will cry out. If the Jews don't proclaim me as the Messiah, the Christians will. Understand? That's what he was saying. Some Jewish people thought because they were physically circumcised, it meant that they were a cut above the rest. I'm glad they got me when I was a baby. They wouldn't get me today. I remember when my son was circumcised on the eighth day, the Moyel, the rabbi, came over. And before he circumcised him, he put some wine on a ball of cotton and gave it to the baby. He said, what's the wine for? And he said, to deaden the pains. I said, that kid could see that knife. He'd say, keep the wine. Give me some Jack Daniels. <laughs> so John the Baptist said, you think you're special. God could raise up Abraham's children out of the... The Gentile church only sees part. Because they've lost sight of the roots. The whole Bible's like that. All of it. Mitras. Signs and wonders. Miracles. Jesus did miracles and healings for three reasons. The first reason was the compassion of God. It says he felt compassion on the people. That's one. When he said the, when he said the 5,000, he said he felt compassion. Compassion of God is one reason. The second reason was that it exemplified the kingdom of God breaking in. Breaking into a fallen world. But the third reason is that his miracles exemplified something spiritually. What? Usually salvation. Think of the healing at Bethsaida. A man is confined to a pallet, isn't he? Paralytic. Jesus comes and heals him. But when he heals the man, he tells the man, pick up your pallet, go your way, and sin no more. Why did Jesus tell this man to pick up his pallet and go his way? Why did he still need this piece of wood to which his flesh was confined? It would be like someone being cured of polio and then getting back into a wheelchair. Why? What's the purpose? Because it was the piece of wood to which his flesh was confined. What Jesus was saying to him in Jewish metaphor is pick up your cross and follow me. Live a crucified life. Keep your flesh confined. He was saying. Everybody's blind until he opens their eyes. We're all lame until he empowers us to walk in the Spirit. All of his miracles have a double meaning. All of them. All of them. 
In John 9, when he heals the blind man, he's comparing the choiceless blindness of someone born blind with the willful blindness of the religious establishment. It's easier for Jesus to open the eyes of those who are physically blind than it is those who are of choice spiritually blind. There's none so blind as those who cannot see. No. Those who cannot see are not the ones who are truly blind. Those who will not see. Those who choose religion over a relationship with God. The ones who are most blind. Whenever he did these miracles, particularly healings, Jesus said, Shh! Don't tell anybody. That was his normal response. Today they make a show of it. Often a bogus show. Many of these so-called miracles you see today are not even authentic. They cannot be medically documented. Some can, but much of it is just charlatanism. I've even heard a case, and I'm positive it's true. I've heard it more than once, but even in Australia, where they said to get somebody in a wheelchair to get in and pretend he was healed and get out of the wheelchair just to help encourage the faith of the other people. <laughs> Mostly rubbish. Jesus said... A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Biblically, it's these signs follow. Jesus never made the signs the issue. It was repentance. Acts 4, the apostles healed the man at the temple gates. It was the same. What do you gaze at us? What do you marvel? That's not the issue. Repentance and saving faith in Jesus is the issue. Biblically, it's these signs follow. Today you wind up with people wanting a show. That's what they wanted on Palm Sunday, a show, and he refused to put it on. A wicked generation seeks the signs. When you see people flocking to these stadiums and all this, to see these money preachers from the States and South Africa, Jesus called that wickedness and adultery. That's what he called it. But they've lost sight of the roots. But now let's look at the subject of prophecy. Prophecy is much more interesting. When you understand biblical prophecy, you always have to break something down a certain way and ask certain questions. What is literal? What is figurative? And what is both? Secondly, what is for Israel? What is for the church? And what's for both? Thirdly, what is for the first coming of Jesus? What is for the second coming of Jesus? And what is for both? You've always got to work those things out. The prophets prophesied for their own time. They prophesied for the first coming of the Messiah. And they prophesied for the second coming of the Messiah. Sometimes all in the same breath. Jeremiah predicted the destruction of the first temple, which was destroyed to Shabbat, roughly the 9th of August, in the Hebrew calendar. The second temple was destroyed the same day, in a similar military scenario. The Babylonians destroyed the first temple, but the Romans destroyed the second temple. Only by that time, the mystery religions of Babylon found their way through Asia Minor, particularly the city of Pergamum, into the Greco-Roman Empire, and the early church identified Rome with Babylon. That's why Peter wrote, she who is in Babylon greets you. He predicted for more than one thing at a time. So let's understand how this applies to us. 
Let's look at the difference and the problems caused by reading prophecy with a Western mind. Look at Matthew 2, Matthew's nativity narrative. Matthew 2, verse 15. Herod dies and it says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So Matthew says that that prophecy is about Jesus coming out of Egypt when Herod dies. That's what Matthew says. Now let's take our Western Protestant grammatical historical methods of exegesis, which the reformers acquired from 16th century humanists like Erasmus, and exegete that passage of Scripture that Matthew quotes. Turn to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that text in its context, by our way of looking at it, is about the Exodus. It's about Moses bringing Israel out of Egypt. But Matthew says it's about Jesus. Matthew takes the thing out of all reasonable context and misapplies it to something totally different. Who is he, John Wimber? Matthew's exegesis is unscientific. And you will see liberal, higher critical scholars saying so. And evangelical, conservative scholars doing somersaults to try to explain the problem in their commentaries. Some of them made honest attempts like Walter Kaiser, but none of them have it right. Some of them begin to see. It's Midrash. To our Western way of understanding messianic and eschatological prophecy, something is predicted, then it happens. Prediction and a fulfillment. That's the way we've been conditioned to look at it. To Jewish prophecy, it's not like that at all. Nothing to do with it. Eschatological and messianic prophecy doesn't work that way. If you go to a theological cemetery, I mean seminary, you'll be taught there's four ways to understand prophecy. Preterism, Historicism, poemicism, or futurism. Futurism's like my friend Barry Smith, has to happen in the future. The future. It's going to happen at the end of the world. Poemicism says it's simply literature, poetic type literature, to encourage the church during times of persecution. Poemicism. Liberal theologians say it's preteristic. It's what they call an exvathachina interpolation. You take something that already happened in the past and write it, in the, write it and try to make a prophecy out of it after it happened. 
For instance, Isaiah could not have possibly known, could not possibly have known a priori that a benevolent Gentile king, 200 years later, named Cyrus, was going to send the Jews back from the captivity. Before the Persian Empire replaced the Babylonian Empire as the world power. He couldn't have known that. Therefore, that proves prima facie that Isaiah didn't write Isaiah. There had to be somebody later writing in his name. He couldn't have known the future. We can't be sure there's a God, and even if there was, we can't be sure he knew the future. And even if he did know the future, he certainly wouldn't have told Isaiah. Or Daniel. Daniel foresaw what was happening with the Maccabees and Antiochus Epiphanes in too much detail. Daniel could not have possibly written the book of Daniel. You see what I'm saying? So therefore, it already has happened. And you try to make some kind of a prediction out of it. That's the extreme form of preterism. There are more moderate forms. Then there is historicism. Historicism says it fully happened in the early church. The reformers were historicists, largely. Now, to our Western minds, one of four of these are true. When you ask people about biblical prophecy, about the last days, about revelation or something, they'll say, are you a polemicist, a historicist, a preterist, or a futurist? That's silly. Jesus was all four. But let's begin with this. Out of Egypt I've called my son. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Midrashically, Israel often alludes to the Messiah. When you see verses in Isaiah like, Israel my glory, Israel my firstborn, they're midrashic allusions to the Messiah. You understand? But it begins with Abraham. In a famine, Abraham, who's the father of all who believe, he's the archetype, he goes down into Egypt in a famine. God judges Pharaoh and Abraham comes out of Egypt and goes into the promised land. Abraham's sons, the sons of Jacob in a famine, go into Egypt. God judges Pharaoh and Abraham's descendants come out of Egypt and go to the promised land. Now the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. God again judges a wicked king, Herod, and he comes out of Egypt and goes to the promised land. 1 Corinthians 10. What does Paul say? When we get saved, we come out of Egypt and go to the promised land. Egypt's the figure of the world. Pharaoh, who's a type of the Antichrist, is a symbol of the devil, the god of this world, also deified by the Egyptians. The way Moses went to a mountain, made a covenant with blood and sprinkled it on the people, so did Jesus. And as Moses led them out of Egypt, through the water, into the promised land, is the way Jesus leads us out of the world, through baptism, into heaven. We come out of Egypt. The final is the resurrection and rapture of the church. Those judgments in Revelation simply replay or recapitulate the judgments in Exodus, don't they? The choshek, the darkness, the blood. The way the Pharaoh's magicians counterfeited the miracles of Moses and Aaron, that's the way the Antichrist and false prophet will counterfeit the miracles of Jesus and his witnesses. Why did they bring Joseph's bones with them out of Egypt? The dead in Christ will rise first. We come out together. Jewish prophecy is not a prediction and a fulfillment. When it's messianic or eschatological, it is a pattern. Multiple fulfillment. But each fulfillment 
is a type or a foreshadow of the ultimate one. You understand? Each fulfillment is a type or shadow of the ultimate one. Now let's apply this to the last days and see why the Gentile church will never get it right. As long as it keeps reading a Jewish book with a Greek mind. Look at Matthew 24. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, Hashikutz HaMeshomem, it's an Aramaic term, not a Hebrew one. Whatever that's going to be, it already happened. With Antiochus Epiphanes, an image was set up in the temple, wasn't it? The Maccabees liberated the Temple Mount. Statue of Zeus was set up in the temple. Pig was slaughtered in the temple. Some kind of a literal fulfillment of that thing already happened in the story of the first Hanukkah. More than that, Jesus knew it because Jesus celebrated Hanukkah in John chapter 10. So Jesus took something that already happened in the past and made a prophecy of it for the future. Jesus used preterism. Not the way the liberals do. But he used preterism. When we read the Qumran literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see the same thing. They saw prophecy as a pattern. They understood the prophetic significance of events in their own time as being a multiple fulfillment of other things that happened in Israel's history. They understood the future on the basis of the past and the present on the basis of the past. So he took something that already happened and says it'll happen again. It'll be an abomination. But then historicism is true. When you read Josephus, the prophecies of Daniel and Jesus about the destruction of the temple were literally fulfilled. The Romans set up pagan entrance on the Temple Mount, symbolizing political dominion over the house of God, and began to worship them, where the Holy of Holies had been. In the second century, the Emperor Hadrian built the city of Avelina Capitolina with the Temple of Jupiter on the Temple Mount. Another abomination of desolation. In the 4th century, Constantine's nephew, Julian Apostate, tries to re-paganize the Roman Empire, tries to rebuild the temple, and all these mysterious fires happen on the Temple Mount, recorded in secular history. Today, you have the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar, with a quotation from a surat in the Koran, God has no son. Now it says in John's epistle, that which denies the father and son relationship is Antichrist. It's an abomination of desolation on the Temple Mount now. Historicism is true. Multiple fulfillments of it. It is fulfilled in history. It has been fulfilled, but it's being fulfilled, yet it's going to be fulfilled. Now let's look further. Polemicism is true. John wrote Revelation when he was exiled on Patmos, I'm quite convinced, during the persecution of Diocletian. Very old man. He encouraged the church at a time of persecution. Where is Jesus? We thought he'd be here by now. All the apostles are dead except for John. What happened? But finally, futurism is true. Watch out for these people trying to tell you that the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in 70 A.D. full stop. Kevin Connor and these guys, they're wrong. 
the ultimate discourse is not just Matthew 24, it's Matthew 24 and 25, and Luke 21. We look at all of it. Did Jesus separate the sheep from goats in 70 A.D.? Or did he reward people on the basis of what they did with their talents in 70 A.D.? Of course he didn't. These things are only partially fulfilled. You understand? Partially. Jewish prophecy is pattern. If you want to understand the future, you have to understand the way prophecy works. And they don't. The Bible says there is a spirit of Antichrist. There are many Antichrists. And ultimately, there will be these two beasts in Revelation. It's so important that you understand the types of the Antichrist to understand who he's going to be. Now, it's frightening. Again, the Gentile church is missing all of it. They're always, ever since Nero, the church has been trying to figure out who 666 is. Nero was the first guy they did with this. Uh, it's true, the Pope's title in Latin, Vicarius Christus, Dei, it's 666. It's true, if you count the Roman numbers out, that's true. The Greek word for Antichrist does not simply mean against Christ, it means in place of Christ. And if you were to translate the Pope's Latin title, Vicarius Christus, the Vicar of Christ, into Greek, it would be Antichristus. Every Pope says, I am the Antichrist, and he puts on his tiara. Every Pope. True. And be very careful. There's two beasts in Revelation. Two beasts. One from the earth, one from the sea. One of those beasts will be a Jew, one a Gentile. It's a dangerous thing, but Jesus said, if another comes in my name, him you will believe. Now that had a partial fulfillment with Bar Kokhba in the second century and Rabbi Akiva. But whoever the Antichrist is, he's going to have to convince the Jews he's the Messiah. And I'll tell you one man to watch out for, and I'm not suggesting he's the, I am not suggesting he's the Antichrist. I'm simply saying, watch out. Cardinal Lustiger of Paris is potentially the next Pope and he's Jewish. Watch out for him. Very dangerous man. I'm not saying he's the Antichrist, but I'm saying he's Jewish and he's potentially the next Pope and every Pope is an Antichrist. And watch out for him. He's a very dangerous man. Nonetheless, the church is always trying to figure out who was 666. It's beginning in the wrong place. The first thing they should do is find out where this number occurs in the Bible. That number is in the Bible four places clearly. And when you look at the Aramaic text of Daniel, five places. Where else is it in the Bible? Two of the places that the number of the beast occurs in the Bible, outside of Revelation 13, is with Solomon when he backslides. It may or may not be a coincidence that Freemasons trace their origin to Solomon. And the Black Bible, the Satanic Bible, claims, the Satanists claim that Solomon gave them their Bible when he backslid. They claim that. If it's true or not, I have no idea. The Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, pays him homage, and she is baffled by his capacity to understand riddles. That's even in Hebrew. It says in Daniel that the Antichrist will understand his themes, will understand the riddles. Proverbs 1, what does Solomon say? To understand the words of the wise and their riddles. Same Hebrew word, same word. Two of the four places. The Gentile woman pays him homage. 
In Luke's Gospel, Jesus uses the Queen of Sheba, Malkisheva, as a type of the Gentile church. He'll be able to deceive even the church up to a certain point before he's identified with 666. And his wisdom will do it. The most important type of the Antichrist in the Bible is Judas Iscariot. Both Judas and the Antichrist are called the son of perdition. Both Judas and the Antichrist are the only two people who are demon-possessed by Satan personally. Others are demon-possessed, but possessed by Satan personally, only Judas and the Antichrist are the only two. They're both into money. They're both the son of perdition. The Gospels even describe the Antichrist in the character of Judas, doesn't it? In John's epistle, they went out from among us, but they were not really of us. You ever notice how John describes Antichrist as like Judas? Just what Judas did, wasn't it? They went out from among us, but they were not really of us. Whenever you see something about Judas in the Bible, in either Testament, and he's in the Old Testament as well, Zechariah 11, among other places. He's in Nahum. Whenever you see the 30 pieces of silver prophecies, whenever you see something about Judas, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you something about the Antichrist. Whenever you see anything about Judas, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you something about the real Antichrist. Just think of it. Let's look at it. Let's look at what Judas says about could this not have been sold and given to the poor? Could this not have been sold and given to the poor, asked Judas? It seems like he cares for the poor. But in actual fact, Judas could not care less about the poor. The only thing Judas really cared about was himself. Let's look at John's Gospel. John chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now look at Mark 14, 4. Always read the Gospel synoptically. But some we're indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? So it begins with Judas, then it goes to some. Now let's look at Matthew 26, 8. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this. Why this waste? Judas incites some of the others. But then it becomes a popular outcry. Judas ingratiated himself in the eyes of the other disciples by falsely claiming to care about the poor. The Antichrist will ingratiate himself with the church by falsely pretending to care about 
the poor. To have a social gospel. Even now, people are deceived by it, Christians. When Mother Teresa got the Nobel Prize, the documentary of her was on PBS in America. She made it very clear that she made no effort to give these Hindu people the gospel before they died. She let them worship other gods, which Deuteronomy says are demons. Shadim in Hebrew, and Corinthians says are demons. The Manoi in Greek, other gods are demons. Just clean them up. You pick them up off the streets of Calcutta, you clean them up, and give them a clean place to die with dignity, and you send them off to hell in a laundry chute in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's her gospel. Now, nobody in their right mind could disagree with her humanitarian activities. But nobody who reads the Bible can agree that she's preaching the gospel or practicing biblical Christianity. You try speaking against what Mother Teresa does. The problem is not what she does, the problem is what she doesn't do. It's not Christianity, it's a social gospel. There's a crazy organization very active in this country practicing gross deception, the International Christian Embassy. They claim they can bless the Jews without giving the Jews the gospel. They have a purely social gospel to the Jews. They won't give Jewish people the gospel. They have a statement of faith which is heretical. They claim to be fulfilling Isaiah 40, that they can win the Jew, that they're comforting the Jews and saying to Israel, their iniquity is removed without the blood of Jesus. Absolutely heretical statement of faith. Yet many Christians get sucked in by these social gospels. The Antichrist will use that. He's going to pretend to care about the poor. Whenever you see something about Judas, the Holy Spirit is telling you something about the Antichrist. Now look at it. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Who was it? Even the apostles didn't know who it was till Jesus revealed him. This person is going to be slick. He is going to be sharp. Forget this stuff. You can be raptured out of here before he comes. It says in Thessalonians, the day will not come until the apostasia, the great falling away comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. But he who has wisdom count the number of the beast. Faithful Christians have to have to know who this guy is before they'll be removed. We will have to know who he is. Everybody else will be deceived by him. If born-again Christians can't see through an obvious heretic like Kenneth Copeland, or an obvious charlatan like Rodney Howard Brown, if you can't see through people like that, what are they going to go do when this guy comes? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? If people can't see through an obvious charlatan like Rodney Brown, what are they going to do when this guy comes? Frightening. They don't understand about the Antichrist. They have a Hellenistic view of prophecy. But let's go deeper. Let's look further at the subject of prophecy. Let's look at some things in the book of Revelation. You will not get this in a commentary. Chapter 8. When he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for a half hour. Right? And then out of this seventh seal, what do you have? In verse 6, seven angels with seven trumpets. So you have silence, seven seals, but out of the seventh seven, 
you have seven angels with seven trumpets. Then you have these two witnesses in chapter 11 for the two olive trees in verse 4 that we see in the book of Zechariah. We know that these two olive trees are in Zechariah and somehow Merubavel and Yeshua, the priest and the king's descendants, typify them in some way from Zechariah. Others say that Moses and Elijah, but let's just look at what we know for sure. Then this last trumpet is blown in verse 15 of chapter 11. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. So you've got this silence in heaven. You have two Greek words for time. Kairos and Kronos. I don't know how you apply time to eternity. Nonetheless, the silence is there. You've got the seven seals, but out of the seventh seal come seven trumpets. Then you've got these two witnesses who come and do something before the last trumpet is blown. When the last trumpet is blown, the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our God and His Messiah. Now these trumpets plainly fit in in some way with the Jewish Feast of Trumpets. Now rabbis call it Rosh Hashanah, but it's the Feast of Trumpets in the Bible. It also connects with the last trumpet, and Christ will descend with the trumpets sound in Thessalonians and Corinthians. But how do we figure this out? It connects with all that stuff, for sure. Midrashically, this progression in Revelation is a replay of the story of Joshua. Look at Joshua chapter 6. How does it begin? Silence. They had to be totally silent. Then they had to march around seven times. But the seventh time, seventh day, they had to do it seven times. So you have the same numerical configuration. Seven sevens, but the seventh seven has a subset of sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets coming out of the seventh seal. Seven days, but the seventh day, seven marches. Totally quiet. Then instead of those two witnesses, you have the two spies who rescued the Gentile woman, Rahab, a type of the church and somehow. And then the seventh trumpet is blown. And instead of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and His Messiah, what does it say in Joshua? This city has been given to us by the Lord. You understand? One is a Midrashic replay of the other. There's nothing in the book of Revelation that's not somewhere else in the Bible. But you're not going to get this stuff out of commentaries. Because they're reading a Hebraic book with a Hellenistic mind. Seal these things up to the time of the end. You want it unsealed. All right. Go back to the root. Let's look at the Lord's Supper. The early brethren had the most biblical understanding of the Lord's Supper when you properly understand it from its Jewish perspective. They had the most biblical understanding of it. They were the closest. 
Their approach to the subject of typology was perhaps the closest the Gentile church ever came to understanding the scriptures of the Jewish book. Although I would speak well of some of the early Puritan fathers as well, some of them. Let's look at the Lord's Supper. Jewish Passover. Before Jewish families eat the Passover Seder, they have to clean the entire house of leaven. Why leaven? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at leaven. Verse 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For the Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Clean out the leaven. Your boasting is not good. Leaven puffs up. In the Middle East, women make bread by a sourdough method. Before they bake the loaf of bread, they take a lump of dough from it. Then they roll it up and put it into the batter of the next loaf before that's baked. And before they bake that, they take a lump out of that one, roll that up, and put it into the batter of the next one, and so on. Yeast spores multiply very rapidly biologically. So sin goes from generation to generation. But it puffs up. Pride is the kind of sin that underscores or undergirds other sins. Satan's first sin in the typology of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, what was it? Pride. He wanted to be God. What was man's first sin? You can be God. Pride. Satan puts his pride into us. It puffs up. If someone has a problem with uncontrolled anger, underneath that is pride. Someone has a problem with uncontrolled lust, underneath that is pride. Someone has a problem with greed, underneath that is pride. Pride is the kind of sin that gives rise to other sins. Your boasting is not good, clean out the leaven. But then there's more leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. False doctrine. One of the reasons the charismatic movement was self-doomed was because it compromised on doctrine. That's why after 30 years it's not brought revival. Why, after 30 years of renewal, the churches are worse off now than they were 30 years ago. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. False doctrine is pride. You'll find the people who persist in false doctrine. Pride and it's sin. Now, before a Jewish family can eat the Passover, all the leaven's cleaned out of the house. You play a game with your children. Called the Bedichat Chamet. You search for the leaven. Your wife needs a little bit of a biscuit somewhere. And when your children are small, you go around with a wooden spoon, a feather, and a candle, and you find it. The reference is Zephaniah 1.12. I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And you bring the leaven outside the house, and you burn it, and pray a prayer of repentance as a family. May this and all the leaven I have not found be considered null and void. In other words, sin, pride, false doctrine must be purged before a Jewish family can eat the Passover. Okay? On Palm Sunday, the Romans had the Fortress Antonio towering over the Temple Mount. When they proclaimed Jesus, 
They wanted someone who was going to get rid of the Romans the way the Maccabees had gotten rid of the Greeks 150 years earlier. Instead, he got rid of the money changers in the temple. What you had was this. They needed to have a lamb without blemish. And the Sanhedrin would inspect the lamb for up to 150 different possible defects. I'm sorry, 74 different defects. And if they could find no defects, they would take the lamb out and sacrifice it for their sins. The very day when the Sanhedrin were inspecting the lamb was the day they put Jesus on trial. And finding nothing in the Lamb of God that was the defect, they took him out and sacrificed on this day, we told us they cut the mundi, if you like Latin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But their religious theocracy were profiteering on the blood of the Lamb. Hey, listen, uh, you need a Lamb without blemish, I'll tell you what you do. You go to my cousin Shmulek, the kosher butcher, 10% under the table, the Lamb will be all right. The religious leaders were exploiting God's people. They were profiteering on the blood of the land. No, he didn't get rid of the Romans. He got rid of them. Judgment began in the temple, not in the fortress Antonio. Judgment begins in the house of God. Jesus is always much more concerned with the sin in my life as a believer and your life as a believer than he is with the sin in the lives of the unsaved. Until he gets us right, he'll never be able to use us as his messengers to get them right. Revival never begins out there. It begins in here. In here and in here. That's where revival begins. When he cleansed the temple of the money changers, he was fulfilling the Bebi Chachamet. They took care of the literal removal of the leaven. He did it spiritually. Why did Jim Baker and these guys go to jail in America? These money preachers? Same reason. Corrupt religious leaders who are profiteering on the blood of the Lamb. Judgment begins in the house of God. Now, that's only the beginning of Passover. There must be a dealing with sin before we come to the Lord's Pesach. Second, the rabbis tell us that the unleavened bread, we call it matzah, Passover week in Hebrew is called Hag Matzot, the feast of unleavened bread. must be striped and pierced. Have you ever seen matzah? Jewish matzah? It's striped and it's pierced. It corresponds to the flesh of the lamb, the Talmud tells us. By his stripes we are healed. He was pierced through for our transgressions. It's broken. And you take the Afro-Kameen, you break it, you wrap it, and bury it under the tablecloth. You hide it. And the children have to find it in the Passover meal. And as we discovered at the end, after it's been striped, pierced, left, broken, buried, and rediscovered, it's the resurrection. That's what Jesus used in the Lord's Supper. We have to understand this. When Jewish people take the Passover, they're looking back and looking forward. Nisan, roughly April, is the Hebrew month of redemption. Jewish people look back to what God did at the first Exodus when they came out of Egypt, the first salvation, but they look forward to the coming salvation that the Messiah would bring. They look back and they look forward. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's the same. 
We are supposed to be looking back and looking forward. Yes, it's a memorial of what Jesus did. We remember the Lord. Zikaron. When you understand the Jewish background of Zikaron, memorial meal, and of the prayer he would have said in Aramaic, which is still in the Sephardic Haggadah, the Sephardic Passover ritual. This is like the bread, the language of analogy. You understand how utterly absurd the Roman Catholic invention of transubstantiation is. Utterly, utterly absurd. Totally alien to the original Jewish concept of the memorial meal. It was not even formulated in its final form, so Thomas Aquinas found some Aristotelian formula with, dealing with what they called accidents to, to, to concoct it. But it's absolute, a transubstantiation is ridiculous. It, it, it says that Jesus dies again and again and again. Hebrew says he died once and for all, four times. Peter says he died once and for all. What it does is denies the cross, saying it's the same sacrifice. Remember Moses struck the rock more than once and he couldn't go to heaven? The rock was Christ, wasn't it? It's like he was crucifying Jesus over and over. Uh, transubstantiation is demonic. They worship the bread and wine as Christ, then eat it. That's cannibalism. Absolutely sick. And totally alien to the entire Jewish concept of Zikaron, of Pesach. The pagan doctrine is not biblical. Jesus called it eating food sacrifice to idols, the church of Thyatira. What Thyatira means in Greek is continuing sacrifice. That's what it means. The abomination. Those who eat at Jezebel's table. So you have this then. They're looking back to what he did at his first coming, at the first redemption, but they're looking forward. For us it's the same. Song of Solomon, the wedding banquet. Revelation 19. We're looking back, but we're looking forward. In here, when Christians meet together, the breaking of bread should be central to their worship and fellowship in one body. Central. Central. Outside is the world. Washing each other's feet. Before they ate the meal, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He said, you want to wash each other's feet? Peter says, my hands, my arms, all of me. But Jesus says, no, you're already clean, it's only your feet. Why? Once you're saved, you're already clean. But our feet is what comes in contact with the fallen world. That's the mission. We refresh each other from our contact with the world before we come to the Lord's table. Out there is what we're leaving. In here is a little hint of where we're going. When we become, we meet the Lord. In here is an appetizer of our destiny. Yes, we're remembering what he did, but because of what he did, we're looking forward to what he's going to do. Wash each other's feet. What the most churches do? They set up a coffee urn in the fellowship hall, and after they eat the meal, they have the fellowship and refresh each other from their contact with the world. What kind of a week did you have, Henry? Pretty good, praise the Lord. I had a lot of chances to witness that work. How about you, Philip? Oh, it was rotten. I just got in the flesh so much, the work pressures were getting... You're supposed to do that stuff before you eat the meal, not after. You understand? We're supposed to refresh each other from a contact with the world before coming to the Lord's table. Get the whole thing all wrong. The whole thing is wrong. Exodus 13, those who came out of Egypt should eat it. Those who've been saved. Let your children see you eat it. And when your children ask you why, because of what the Lord did for me when he took me out of Egypt. Why? Because of what Jesus did when he saved me out of the world. It's a way to teach your children. 
educational psychology. Parents, children want to imitate their parents. It's an object lesson. Our daughter is a baptized believer. She's 11, she's born again and baptized. Our son is not baptized yet. Until we assure he has a personal relationship, he'll be baptized, then he can have it. He somehow knows that he's a member of our family, but he's not fully included in it. He's supposed to be made to feel excluded as a way of provoking him to want to be included. Can't understand. Teach your children with it. Now. Looking back and looking forward. The Lord's Supper is the way that Jesus, that God has given us to cope with the reality of physical death. Unless Jesus comes first, we're going to die. Do you have a Christian who's dying and the Lord is not going to heal them? The biblical thing to do is what Jesus did. When he was going to die, when someone is going to die, they're like Jesus. You don't spend your time talking about the pop charts or the football scores. You spend your time talking about the things that are most important. And you spend your time with those people who are most important to you. That's what Jesus did. Truly I say to you, I've longed to eat the Passover with you. But I'll not eat it with you until we eat it in my Father's kingdom, he says. When someone's going to die who's a Christian, you bring their family who are Christians and their closest friends who are Christians and you break bread with them and you say, the same as we break this bread and drink this cup now. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to me, even physical death, the same as we break this bread and drink this cup now. We know a billion and a trillion years from now we're going to be together and break this bread and drink this cup in the future because of what he did for us in the past. It is to be a spiritual and a psychological encouragement to those facing death and their families facing bereavement. The same as we do it now, we're going to do it again someday. Taking it as a family... Husbands and wives, parents and children, that's the way it's supposed to be. Instead of that, instead of what it's supposed to be, you wind up with some stupid abomination like this published locally by some clergy. I'm told you have Baptist, Anglicans, and Apostolic churches involved in it. This is sick. This is absolutely perverted. I'm not attacking the people, but what's in this thing is sick. Most of it is very shallow. It understands little of what the Lord's Supper really is, why they've lost sight of the root. The Holy Communion should be totally inclusive. I realize this will present the biggest problems lining up with Scripture. <laughs> what, do you, what does Baptist guy write? And our own tradition. I believe that communion should be totally inclusive and that everyone's given the opportunity to participate. Everybody. That's what he, that's what this Baptist guy says. Let's see what the Word of God says. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. How can you discern the body if you're not a part of it? He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not rightly judge the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, die. 
This guy is doing something that the Word of God says will cause people to be sick, to be weak, and even possibly lose their lives. Because that this guy is teaching to do it. This is sick. This is deranged. Not only has this guy lost sight of the root, I think this guy just lost his marbles. <laughs> Yet it has popular acceptance, allowing the Lord's table to be defiled. It says in Jews, there are blemishes on your agapes, your blood feet. Even backsliding Christians, it says in Judah, are, are, are blemishes on your agapes. This is craziness. This is really crazy. No. People can die from taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Let everybody do it. Saved, unsaved. That's crazy. And they let someone like that be a minister in an evangelical church? This is depraved. If you go to a church like that, you better get yourself out of it or else get rid of your minister, one or the other. Don't get somebody who reads the Bible. Don't lose sight of the truth. Many things are happening now. Many things. A lot more that could be said. Israel, God's timepiece. The time of the Gentiles coming to an end. The time of the Gentiles occurs between the 69th and 70th week of the visions of the prophet Daniel. How does the Apostle John say, Little children, it's the last hour. That was nearly 2,000 years ago. How could it have been the last hour 2,000 years ago? Simple. There's a rugby game. And the All Blacks are playing the Springboks. And Joseph, jo, Jonah Lomo tackles someone and breaks his neck, which wouldn't be hard for him to do. And the doctor runs out, the paramedics go out and say, we can't move this guy, we've got to get an ambulance. So the referee stops the clock. Quick. The clock just And there's ten minutes left in the game. Now your wife has asked you, what time would you like your dinner? And you told your wife, I'd like my dinner when the game is over. In ten minutes, at six o'clock, the game will be over. But at ten minutes to six, this guy gets injured and they stop the clock. So six o'clock comes and your wife asks you, do you want your dinner in the microwave or in the dog? What time will your rugby game be over? In ten minutes. And your wife says, but you told me there was ten minutes left in the game ten minutes ago. How long left in the game? Well, there's ten minutes left in the game. But how can it be ten minutes left in the game when there was ten minutes left in the game ten minutes ago? The clock stopped. The time of the Gentiles comes to an end. It's always one minute to midnight. It's always the last hour. That clock can begin once again. The prophecies of Jeremiah are being fulfilled. Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem, trampled under the feet of the Gentiles, is being fulfilled. 
until it's completed, in the process of being fulfilled. Romans 11, the Jews, the natural branches being grafted in again. That's happening. The clock begins once more. That clock is ticking. The time of the Gentiles will come to an end. Natural branches will be grafted in again. World events will become increasingly centered around the Middle East prophetically. It's going to happen. In the meantime, these things that have been sealed have to be unsealed. To know about the end, to understand in the last days, we need to be wise virgins with oil in our lamps. What Jesus was doing when he gave the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25 was what he always did. He took what was being read in the synagogues and explained what it meant. In the synagogue liturgy at Passover, in the synagogue to this day is read the Song of Solomon, Hashir Hashirim. The Song of Solomon, Solomon's Romance with Shulamit, is based on two dreams, chapter 3 and chapter 5. In between those, chapter 4, verse 6, the bridegroom goes to the mountain of Myrrh, anointed for burial, the hill of frankincense, the place of sacrifice, to die for his bride. We know from the gender and number in the Hebrew text what's the bride, what's the bridegroom, and what's the witnesses to the relationship. The Sevaot, host of heaven, who witnesses. It's, of course, a reflection of the Messiah's relationship with his bride. Look at the Song of Solomon, chapter 3. On my bed, night after night, she says in verse 1, I saw him whom my soul loved. I saw him but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city in the streets and the squares. I must find him whom my soul loves. I saw him but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the deers of the field, you will not arouse my beloved until she pleases. Over and over it's the same refrain. Don't wake her up till she pleases. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back. He's waiting for us to be ready. It says when the crop permits, he sends the harvesters. We're not waiting for Jesus to come. He's waiting for us to be ready. He's waiting for the bride to be spotless. Chapter 4, as I told you, verse 6, now the gender changes until the cool of day when the shadows flee. I'll go to the mountain of myrrh, the hill of frankincense. Now her best dream is chapter 3. She's all ready for the bridegroom to come, isn't she? She goes out to the policeman. Where is he? She finds him and he takes her away. Chapter 5, verse 2. He comes in verse 1, I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride, and all this stuff. And it begins in this, uses Hebrew poetry to describe sexual acts, love making, and so on. 
Then in verse 2 it says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice. My beloved knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. I've taken off my dress, she says, the gender changes. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet, how can I make them dirty again? My beloved extended his hand to the opening. My feelings were aroused for him. I opened to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. Now she's anointed for burial. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolts. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone away. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he didn't answer. Now the watchman makes the rounds of the city. They found me. They struck me and wounded me. She gets persecuted. The church was not taken away by the bridegroom. Faces of persecution. Chapter 3 is her best dream. Chapter 5 is her worst nightmare. That's what was being read in the synagogues at Passover, Matthew 25. The wise and foolish virgins waiting for the bridegroom. When Jesus comes, it'll be your best dream or your worst nightmare, he was saying. For us as individuals, but more than that, for the church and for churches. He took what was being read in the synagogue and said, this is the way it's going to be when I come. The wise virgins had oil in their lamps. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The illumination of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. The night is the most frequent metaphor for the great tribulation in the Bible. Watchman, watchman, how far is the night? Is he coming in the second watch of the night or the third? He's coming like a thief in the night. Have oil in your lamps to see in the night. Work while you have the light, for night will come, no man can work. Night. Getting dark out now. At the time in church history when we should be the most into the Word of God, having the most oil in our lamps, the most illumination of the Spirit in our understanding. You see, when it's daylight, you don't need too much light. But when it gets darker, you need a lot. When we should be going deepest into the Word of God, most churches have gone the furthest away from it. Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, most of it is based on nothing more than utter hype. Even traditional churches with a strong biblical background, like brethren, reformed churches, they're not what they were 20 years ago. The time when we should be the deepest into the Word of God, we've gone the furthest away from it. Foolish virgins. Seal these things up for the time of the end. It's a Jewish book. Not a Hellenistic book. Not a Greek book. Not a Western book. It's a Hebraic book. Forget about Jesus Christ. His name is Yeshua HaMashiach. Forget about Western Gentile Christianity's way of looking at the Bible. It's inadequate for the last days. I thank God for those who rediscovered the truths of justification by faith. I thank God for those who carried the mantle of the gospel faithfully when it was under attack. But now we have to go deeper. To be ready for Jesus to come back, to stand in the last days, these things have to be unsealed.
You're never going to understand these things reading a Hebraic book with a Hellenistic mind. Never. Tonight I've given you just a little taste, tidbits, little samples. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know what the Bible says. These things will be unsealed. Somehow, somehow God will make these things known to those who are faithful. And I have no doubt that the key to much of that will be those who go back to a Hebraic Jewish understanding of the Christian faith. We've got to go back to step one. We've got to go back to the Apostolic Church, to the Ephesian Church, to the Pre-Nicene Church. All this latter stuff, take it into account. But we have to stop looking at the Word of God through the prism of church tradition and Western scholarship. Don't ignore it. Take it into account. But realize, you don't do calculus with arithmetic. It doesn't work that way. You don't solve quadratic equations counting on your fingers. Grammatical historical exegesis is only a first step. We've got to go back. We have to go back to understanding. Why did Paul use Sarah and Hagar the way he did? Why did Jesus use parable the way he did? Why did Matthew, why does the New Testament quote the Old Testament in the way it did? My dear friends, we've lost sight of the roots. If we are going to be ready for the Lord Jesus to come back, we have to find it again. God bless you. would like to know is, in as few words as possible, if that is possible, uh, what are these basic uh, precepts, precepts or concepts? And secondly, why should the Hebraic, these Hebraic um, concepts be related solely to the apostolic church? What about all the other Christian sects uh, and so on? And also, um, there, I would like to know something too about the early Coptic religion, which I believe was closely related to the Hebraic uh, religion, and which became um, influenced by Hellenism. Okay. Thank you, Fred. I know there's a number of questions there. First of all, uh, I have to know, Fred, what do you mean? Do you mean the, the, the Hebrew faith as it is now, or the one of the Torah? Which one? As it was at the time of Christ. As it was at the time of Christ, the Hebrew faith was this. The thinking of the people was very much influenced by the Maccabees. They had three theologies. To understand the essence of the Hebrew faith as it existed in the times of Jesus, it's all summed up in the Palm Sunday story. They were singing the Hallel Rabbah to Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna. Which is Psalm 113 to 118. Look at Psalm 118 very briefly. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, do send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, barach nuhem Adonai, hoshana, hoshana. Look at verse 25. Do send prosperity. The Jews were unready for Jesus to come the first time because they had a prosperity theology. They wanted a Messiah who was going to make them rich and set up the kingdom in this world. Secondly, they wanted a Messiah who would get rid of the Romans and set up the kingdom in this world. They had a triumphalist eschatology, a kingdom now theology. Dominionist theology. Well, he said his kingdom was not of this world. Thirdly, they wanted him to put on a show. They had a signs and wonders theology. He refused. In the Jewish faith, we have two pictures of the Messiah. Hamashiach ben Yosef, the Messiah, the son of Joseph. And Hamashiach ben David, the Messiah, the son of David. The rabbis couldn't understand this. Even the apostles couldn't understand it. How could he be both the son of Joseph, that is in Genesis, and the son of David? The son of Joseph was associated with the suffering servant of Isaiah, 52 and 53. The fourth servant song of Isaiah, Ishayahu Hanavi. Joseph in Genesis taught about the Messiah the rabbis know and knew, and so does David. In time, the rabbinic literature began to describe it as these two different messiahs, one the son of Joseph, one the son of David. Now we have from the, Qum, from the Qumran literature, Q13 and Melchizedek scroll, which would suggest we can no longer necessarily rule out them understanding about a suffering servant messiah, even in the times of Jesus. We can't prove they did, but we can't say they didn't. What we can say is, the rabbis came to understand that you'd have a messiah who'd be in the character of Joseph and one in the character of David. Joseph was betrayed by his Jewish brothers into the hands of Gentiles. God took this betrayal and turned it around and he made it a way for all of Israel and all the world to be saved. Jesus was betrayed by his Jewish brothers into the hands of Gentiles. God took this betrayal and turned it around and made it a way for all Israel and all the world to be saved. Joseph was condemned with two criminals and as he prophesied, one lived and one died. Jesus, the son of Joseph, and it's fortuitous his foster father's name was Joseph, means God shall add or Yahweh shall add, was crucified with two criminals, condemned with two criminals. And as he prophesied, one lived and one died. They bring Joseph's cloak to prove he's not in the pit, they bring Jesus' shroud to prove he's not in the tomb. Joseph was betrayed by his brother, Yehuda, Judas, for 20 pieces of silver. After inflation, Jesus, the son of Joseph, was betrayed by Yehuda, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph went from a place of condemnation to a place of exaltation in a single day. Jesus went from a place of condemnation to a place of exaltation in a single day. Joseph, upon exaltation, took a Gentile bride. Jesus, upon exaltation, takes a Gentile bride, doesn't he? Church. When Joseph was exalted, to him every knee had a bow. When Jesus was exalted, every knee had a bow. Joseph fed the whole world. Jesus is the bread of life, feeds the whole world. The rabbis understood somehow Joseph teaches about the Messiah. Okay? But then you have the son of David, the conquering king who would set up 
the Messianic, the name from Jerusalem. For Jesus to be the Messiah, the, the Christ of the church, he must be the Messiah of the Jews. And to be the Messiah of the Jews, he had to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. Both the suffering servant prophecies as the son of Joseph, and the son of David prophecies as the conquering king. This is why the pre-Nicene church said the apostles were premillennial. Only in a spiritual sense did Jesus fulfill the son of David prophecies. Again, he didn't bring in worldwide peace to set up the kingdom. When you understand the Jewish eschatological and messianic expectation, you understand what the apostles meant when they said, Lord, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom? The last thing they asked them, what they meant was, we know you're the son of Joseph. When are you going to be the son of David and fulfill the rest of the prophecies? Even John the Baptist couldn't understand it. He asked his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him if he's the Messiah. So you understand how erroneous a millennial and more so post-millennial theology is. A Jewish understanding of the scriptures can only allow for premillennialism. If there's no millennia to come, Jesus is not the Messiah of the Jews. Therefore, neither is he the Christ of the church. Forget all this amillennial, post-millennial stuff. It is an invention of incipient Roman Catholicism. After Constantine Christianized the Roman Empire, they had to spiritualize it in the church somehow. So they thought the Messiah was going to come, but they couldn't see how he could be both the son of Joseph and the son of David. They wanted him to get rid of the Romans the way the Maccabees had the Greeks and set up the kingdom. They had a prosperity theology, a kingdom now theology, and a science and wonders theology, so they were not ready for him to come the first time. What is going to prevent the Western church from being ready for him to come back? A prosperity theology, a kingdom now theology, and a science and wonders theology. Same error. They wanted somebody who was going to set up the kingdom in Jerusalem and drive the Romans out. That was their expectation. In fact, that's his purpose in his second coming as the son of David. In his first coming, he comes as a suffering servant. The son of Joseph is the son of David. Look at Zechariah 12 very briefly. Then we'll move on to the next question. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around about it. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it'll be against Judah. Even now in the Middle East, you'll find left-wing Jews, Israelis, willing to negotiate over Gaza, Judea, Samaria, the Golan, but don't touch Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem will be the cup of reeling, the stumbling point in Middle East negotiations. So when you get down to verse 10, look what it says when he comes back. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look upon me who they have pierced and mourned for him as one mourns for an only son. And weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Jesus comes back to save them in the great tribulation. And look at the one who they have pierced. In other words, they see that the son of Joseph, who they rejected and betrayed to the Gentiles, is also the son of David. You understand? They'll look upon me, they have pierced and mourn. What happened with Joseph? His brothers didn't recognize him at the first coming. His brothers recognized him at the second coming and wept bitterly, didn't they? He sent his Gentile servants away and personally revealed himself to his Jewish people, Joseph. The same thing happens eschatologically. The Gentile church is raptured. And he personally revealed himself to his brothers. 
the one we rejected and betrayed, the son of Joseph, is also the son of David. And as Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him at the first coming, but the second, and they wept bitterly, so they'll recognize the son of Joseph, not at the first coming, but at the second, and weep bitterly. That was the Jewish expectation when he came the first time. They wanted only the son of David. They had a prosperity, they had the idea of a Messiah who was going to make them rich in this world, set up his kingdom in this fallen world, and put on a tremendous show. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. That was their expectation. That's why they were not ready for him to come. My fear as a Christian is that's why so many of my brethren in Christ are not going to be ready for him to come back. Next question, please. I suggest if you've got a, a supplementary question, Fred, you could see the speaker afterwards if you want to follow that up. So could we have our next question, please? Come down, uh, Ron. Oh, yeah. The Coptic Church today has seen many changes. It has much Hellenistic influence in it itself. And, and mysticism in it. It's not an evangelical church, although they have had a touch of charismatic renewal in Egypt. They're tremendously persecuted to this day by the Muslim Brotherhood, militant Islam in Egypt. I myself led one Coptic brother, Christian to Christ in Cairo some years ago. George Antaki, but they have a terrible time in Egypt. They themselves have mutated over a period of centuries. Uh, what was the third question? I think we'll have to limit it to two. I think there's only one question per person. So, Ron, could you come forward? You can follow those questions up later with the speaker. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. We've heard some of the faults of this special organisation, which is to follow on from Jesus, or to live out or demonstrate what the kingdom is all about. We've also had some clues as to what that organisation, commonly called the church, should be. In Ephesians, there's been references to Ephesians, there's been references to the apostolic nature of it. Surely we have to be able to know or recognise that, not only for ourselves but for other people. Could you help us to better recognise what that bride of Christ, that body of Christ should be? The Bride of Christ, in the state that Christ wants it to be, to recognize what it should be, you simply read the epistles of the apostles to the churches they planted. How did Paul urge the Ephesians to be? How did he urge the Corinthians to be? How did he urge the Galatians to be? The apostolic exhortation to the churches they planted tell us how to identify what the true church is meant to be. Um, I'm interested in learning a bit more about how to understand the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Are there any writers that detail or provide um, good tools for better understanding the scriptures in this way? And if there are no Christian writers, are they Hebrew writers? There are a number of writers who will publish academic books on Midrash. It is mainly scholars who will say that the apostles did use it, such as R.M. Longenecker, who's a Christian scholar, and Jewish scholars like Jacob Neusner, arguing against other scholars who will say they didn't. It's mainly academic books, those saying they did use it, arguing against those who say they didn't. Something like that. There will be books that will show, that will say that Hebrews 10.25, the writer was using Kalvahomer, the first principle of Midrash of Rabbi Hillel, of the Zmidot. You'll find books like that. 
But there's no book that's going to tell you how to do it. No book. As I said in the beginning, it's better to illustrate it than to try to teach how to do it. If there's a key in Midrashic method, it is looking for cognitive relationships between texts based on various categories. Looking at relationships between texts. You understand what I'm saying? Western exegesis tends to approach the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book. I'm not saying that's wrong. But look how Jesus taught. He'd say, for it is written and quote from Psalms. Then he would say, for it is also written and quote from Isaiah. He would argue topically, supporting his conclusions from passages in various books instead of constructing an argument on a single text. Looking for cognitive relationships between texts throughout the whole Bible as a panorama instead of just focusing on one. Does that, that make sense? Fourth question. beasts of uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, I might be going on the Gentile interpretation, but as I understand it, the first beast came out of the sea, which is a type of the Gentile world. The nation, that's right. The second, then that is the Antichrist. Yes. The second beast came out of the land, the earth, a type of Israel. That's right. Which is the false prophet. Uh, or could be the well, it could be the false prophet. The uh, antichrist is not actually used in Revelation 13. It simply says two beasts. No, but they're both antichrists. True. And uh, then you uh, give Judas as a type of the antichrist. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's a Jew. That's right. So I just wondered, is the antichrist going to be a Jew yes. or a Gentile? One of those beasts will have to be a Jew and one a Gentile. Yeah, I understand that. Right. But the Antichrist will have to counterfeit Christ. It will have to be a Jew. Okay? If another comes in my name, he will believe. Jewish people will not follow the Kareem Messiah. Absolutely. You'll always have this conflict between the Greek and Hebrew way of thinking. Now, Zechariah 9, 9, the Messiah comes on a donkey. That's the son of Joseph. You see that in verse 9 of Zechariah 9? That's Jesus in his first coming. Chapter 12 was Jesus in his second coming. In between the two, you have that conflict between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic. You understand? Between the two comings is that conflict. You're exactly correct. One last question. I think there was someone at the... Okay. Jacob, we're uh, simple Gentiles. This guy's a Jew. Don't believe it. I know it. Go ahead. Well, only 50%. Oh, my mother. That's another source. Go ahead. Right. Okay. My mother's a Gentile. We're 50% okay, go ahead. or Gentiles. We're 100% Christian. What's the question? Right. We are simple believers. Most of us hold jobs. Uh, we believe that the scriptures are for us as Gentiles to live our simple faith uh, for him. So my question is that 
with your last and final statement tonight that was very strong, that we must go back to the root. I find difficulty in going away encouraged because our brother has mentioned most of us don't have access to these books. I can't believe that God's made it so complicated for us, although I see the benefit and the point of everything that you're saying. Could you give us something encouraging to go away with for those of us who perhaps feel a little hopeless after this? Anyone agree with me? As I said at the conclusion, as I said at the conclusion, some way God will find a way to show these things to the faithful. Didn't I? I... I believe I stated that quite clearly. In some way, God will show a way to show these things to the faithful. Now, I did conclude that way, didn't I? I did say that. In the age of mass media, in the age of electronic mail, in the age of satellite communications, videos, and tapes, you can get a message out very quickly to a large number of people. It would not be a problem, technologically, to get this kind of teaching out on a mass level. That would not be the practical problem. The problem is, will the Gentile church reorient itself towards seeing the need for it and desiring it? That's the question. Getting the stuff out will not be a problem. Okay. Well, tonight, what I attempted to do was show you how Midrash works. There are other people who take different aspects. Arnold Fulkenbaum takes a different aspect of trying to show the Jewish background of the faith. But it's early days yet. But the very fact that there are people who are beginning to do it is in itself a sign Jesus is coming. You know what I'm saying? The very fact that that it's beginning to happen in itself is a sign that it's going to happen. The Lord will show the faithful. Technology is not the problem. And the teaching will come. The Lord will give it. I, I would say he's already given it. Those who want it will get it. It says in Daniel, none of the wicked will understand. But the faithful will understand. In the last days, understanding and faithfulness become very closely associated. Laodicea is counsel to abide by Saab to anoint its eyes that it may see. Let he who has wisdom count the number of the beasts. The wise virgins will have oil in their lamps ahead of time. Faithfulness and understanding go hand in hand. What I said was, the wise virgins will be prepared. At a time when we should be going deepest into the Bible, we're going the furthest away from it. But everybody has the option to be one of the wise virgins, don't they? You don't need to have these books. You don't need to be a scholar. You don't even need to know the Hebrew language. What you need to do is go back to the Bible for yourself. Ask God to show you. He will. As I said, no book is going to tell you how to use Midrash. One is your teacher who's in heaven, the Holy Spirit. Now, there'll be teachers who will be able to help guide the church. And there's mass media. There's all kinds of ways to get that out. I see nothing to be discouraged about. 
if you really look into Jesus, he's going to show you. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. One is your teacher who's in heaven. Just reorient your mind. The question is, can we stop reading a Jewish book with a Western mind? That's the only question. It'll come.